Bridge the City. Welcome to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas. My name is Benjamin Rangel. And I'm Kyle Hagee. And I'm Sam Woods. That's right, everyone. We have ourselves a new co-host in addition to the Bridge the City team. Yep, and I'm happy to be here. And we're very happy to have you. So uh, with that, what do we have for our listeners today? Today we have another Milwaukee Talkie. As you may recall, our first one was with Superintendent Dr. Driver. Coincidentally, both have been or are MPS superintendents. And uh, yeah, we've been excited about this one for a while. Well, what took you so long? Well, (laughs) we originally had this interview with Dr. Fuller scheduled to be part of our education episode, our last themed episode. But we were very impressed with things that Dr. Fuller had to say outside of his education knowledge. So we wanted to give him a full Milwaukee talk. And how did you guys go about choosing Dr. Fuller? Well, at Bridges City, our mission is to connect people with ideas. Yeah, and I often feel that when different topics become relevant to culture and news, we tend to view these ideas that spawn from them in isolation with their current context. But as you'll see in our conversation with Dr. Fuller, we're able to hear from someone who has been an activist and public servant since the 1970s. Definitely, and uh, with his experience, we're able to get insight from someone who has wisdom around the challenges we face today. The challenges we face today, they may feel very new, but some of these issues have been relevant for decades. So let's hear where he got started and how he obtained all that wisdom. Dr. Howard Fuller, I am a distinguished professor of education and the director of the Institute for the Transformation of Learning at Marquette University. The way I got involved in education is, is, is interesting because when I was in, in college, I, I had to make a decision between teaching and social work. And so I, so I majored in sociology and minored in secondary education. And so I made the decision to go into social work instead of going into teaching. And so when I got my master's degree in social work, I went to work for the Urban League in Chicago, and then it was during the time when Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program had been established. And so I went to work in a community action program down in Durham, North Carolina, because that was a part of the poverty program. And so I started out then as a community organizer. You know, I learned a lot. I mean, everything that I know today, I've learned from the experiences that I had, you know, as an organizer. And it, and it was it was organizing around issues like getting streets paved, getting houses fixed, getting roads, working every day with real people. But as a part of that, I decided to train some uh, young college students on how to become organizers. And as a result of that, one group, went back to Duke University, and at some point they took over the administration building. This was during a period of the black student movement, Mm. and black students were taking over buildings, and, you know, the demand was to create an African-American studies program. So out of all of that came the idea of creating an independent black university, Mm. and so I organized it. It was called Malcolm X Liberation University. So that sort of got me sort of into education somewhat. Then I went on, though, to become a union organizer. So I was uh, organizing uh, low-income workers uh, at Duke University. And, you know, a lot of things proceeded from that. And so I came back to Milwaukee at a a certain point, get a job in the uh, Educational Opportunity Program at Marquette. And so once I became a part of EOP, I became focused on 
education because the idea is that, you know, we were taking students who didn't have the greatest preparation, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, and provided them with, with tutoring service and counseling yeah. and so forth. So so I did that for five years. And then I went to work for Tony Earl, who was the governor at that point, And I was in his cabinet. So I was a secretary of the Department of Employment Relations. And so I, what I really focused on there was I was the personnel manager for all of state government. So I negotiated all of the contracts with the unions. I put the pay plan together for all state employees. I was in charge of the civil service system. So, so, you know, that was a great experience. And then when I came back, I was the dean of general education at MATC. And then I went to be the head of the Department of Human Services for Milwaukee County. And then I became the superintendent. And during that time, I also became involved in the effort to create the first voucher program, the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program. And so those experiences led me to becoming totally focused on education. So once I left being the superintendent and was able to create the institute, then my focus was entirely on trying to advance parent choice uh, in the United States and, and charter schools as a part of the parent choice movement. From our understanding, Dr. Fuller's work in the voucher and the choice movements in education stemmed from a desire to provide primarily African Americans with an avenue to overcome racial disparities. Yeah, it stemmed from a concept of black liberation. So this this idea of like white supremacy and the culture of white supremacy in America, how has that influenced your opinions on charter education? Does that play a role in how you view that, or how do you view education as like a means to overcome that? Not really. I mean, you know, I say at the end of my book that um, that I don't see education as a systemic change notion, or education is at best like a rescue mission. <laughs> it's like you're rescuing as many young people as you can. Now, the hope is that you know, you'll have this ripple effect. You know, they'll get an education, their family will be better. Mm-hmm. But in large part, it, it's, it's not a systemic change lever. You're rescuing as many people as you can. You're trying to say, mm-hmm. okay, the best way for you out of this is to get a good education. Right? Yeah. But I tell young people at our school that if you're poor and black, uh, education guarantees you nothing. But I guarantee you, you will have nothing if you don't get education. Yeah. So I'm clear on the limitations of education, yeah. but it's obvious that without an education, I wouldn't be sitting here talking with uh-huh. you all, right? So from an individual standpoint, education is critical. And so for me, the issue of charter schools, you know, vouchers, traditional public schools, none of those are ideological for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't believe that any of them are any better. I just want to have, for poor people, to have more options. Yeah. I just don't think that there ought to be an America where only those of us with money have the ability to choose the best school for our children. Because mm-hmm. I honestly believe that if you, have, if you have money and schools don't work for your kids, you're either going to move to a community where they do work, you're going to put your kids in private schools, or you're going to get the most expensive tutoring on the planet. Mm-hmm. I think the people who don't have those options are low-income and working-class people. And so for me, charters, vouchers, scholarships, all of those things... They're just levers trying to create ways for people who don't have the resources to gain more control over their lives. 
Part of Dr. Fuller's work in Milwaukee in education includes the founding of Milwaukee Collegiate Academy, or MCA. I would like to hear about Milwaukee Collegiate Academy um, and kind of what you're doing with that. See, here's the thing about MCA, man, is that we're far from a great school. I think we're a good school, but it doesn't just have to do with test scores. Mm -hmm. It has to do with the way that we treat kids. If I thought that MCA, that the city would be better if MCA was not around, I would say that. But I can honestly say, I was just up there today, that I I know that we're doing good by a whole bunch of kids. Mm -hmm. But it's not without issues. It's not without contradictions. So, for example, one of the things we get criticized for is too many expulsions. And the reason why we have expulsions is because six or seven years ago, we all got together as a community, and we agreed on five non-negotiables. No fighting, no drugs and alcohol, no weapons, no disrespecting teachers, no bullying, right? We all agreed. And so then when, when people fight, there's a consequence. You get expelled. Oh, no, you shouldn't expel kids. Well, we all agreed. And when you come into our building, there are no guards. There's no safety aids running around because we ain't trying to have a prison. (laughs) And since you're not trying to have a prison, you then got to have a level of self-discipline. Paul uh, Tuff, his latest book, uh, Helping Our Kids Succeed, he talks about the work of these uh, psychologists who would argue that there's three things to have a really great school. Kids need to have a sense of belonging, that when they come there, they feel like they belong. The second thing is that there has to be a sense of autonomy. Kids believe they can have some individual impact on what's going on. And the third thing is competence, meaning that, you know, you deal with reading, writing, thinking, analyzing, computing, right? But the thing is, if if the kids come there and they don't feel like they belong, or I, I just don't believe that in order to have discipline, you take away joy. Right. And being a part of being young is you're going to do a lot of stupid, <laughs> you, do, you know, some stuff that you yeah. just thought this is the greatest idea yeah. in the world. <laughs> you know, the little lady, like, where, yeah. what, what, you know, what was I yeah. thinking? Right. Yeah. So, oh, so, man. so it's, it's how do you, how do you balance all of that? Right. How do you take a group of kids, uh, like in our ninth grade last year, 22% of them had IEPs. Right. We got, 18 to 19% of our school of 280 kids have IEPs. We had two ninth graders last year who couldn't read at all. Right? What, do, what, do you, you know, what do you do? Yeah. And, and so what you do is you go in there every day and you go at it, right? And you, 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 you like commit yourself. And, and that's what I love about our school and the people who teach there. That, no, we're not a perfect school. But I think we're a school that cares about kids. We're a school that says, hey, look, if you do this, you will get accepted into college. A lot of people don't believe that poor children are capable of deep learning. And so we don't put them in environments where we say to them, we believe that you are. You have these uh, schools for poor and working class. And then you have the ones for the elite, right? And when you go into the ones for poor and working class kids, they get worksheets and all this. So one group is being taught to like take orders. Yeah. Then in the elite schools, people ask them, well, what do you think? What do you think, right? Yeah. So one group is being prepared to run the world and the other group is being prepared 
to take orders. And so when you come to our school, you see an effort to bring rigor and to say to them, you can, you can do this. And, and personalized learning puts a lot more, as you all know, uh, impetus on kids for their own education. But I think it's, it, it is the way. And I can see the impact that it's having on our ninth graders and our 10th graders. So even though the whole focus of our conversation with Dr. Fuller was supposed to be about education, it took us a bit to get into his time as superintendent. I wanted to know more about the values Dr. Fuller tried to epitomize when he was superintendent. People used to ask me, you know, what do you want as superintendent, right? So I had these four things I said over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. First thing was, I want all the kids who graduate from MPS who want to go to college to be able to go directly into the real college and not spend their first two years in remedial education. For all the kids who didn't want to go to college but wanted to try to get a job, I wanted them to have the capacity to get, quote, a living wage job. But I felt like whichever of those two paths, they both needed to have the same rigorous education, Mm -hmm. right? The third thing is I wanted some of our kids, or all of them, to have an entrepreneurial spirit, right? That you go out there not just looking for a job, but you could actually create jobs. And then the fourth thing was that I wanted all of my kids to be able to uh, engage in the practice of freedom. This is what Paulo Freire talks about in Pedagogy of the Oppressed, right? This idea that that you'll be involved in the transformation of your world. Mm-hmm. So those were the four things <laughs> yeah. that, that I wanted. I just kept saying it over and over uh-huh. again, right? But you have to have like a broad value construct yeah. that sort of guides what it is that you're trying to do. Outside of education, Dr. Fuller has been incredibly active on a variety of political issues. Yeah, I'm surprised he never ran for office. Yeah, me too. Uh, but given Dr. Fuller's vast experience in community organizing, we were really interested in his perspective on politics. And you all know by now how much we love to talk about the importance of voting. The thing about voting, voting is very different than almost any other kind of collective activity. And what I mean by that, every, every kind of organizing has its own science to it, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a science to electoral politics. And it's different than just movement politics. And so, so many things come into play, like historical alliances. So the Clintons had all these historical alliances, particularly with Democrats who vote. And you can't confuse turnout for rallies with voting. They could have a certain momentum, like Barack's had a certain momentum, but it wasn't just the rallies. It was the fervor that, 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 that he created that were exemplified by the rallies. And Trump, too. I, I guess the, 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 the point I'm trying to make is politics will make you disillusioned. You know, I really, I mean, especially if you come at it from like, uh, not a naive point of view, but an idealistic point of view, Mm -hmm. which I'm hoping you always have, right? So you come to the table with certain ideals, right? And you see the world in a certain kind of way. And politics will just wipe all of that out, right? Because it's, 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 it's corrupt. It's nasty. And, and, and so then you fight yourself, well, well but, 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 but why should I get into this thing? Because they're all corrupt. Well, they're not all corrupt, 
and there's different levels of corruptness, mm -hmm. and there's different levels of impact, right? Mm -hmm. So now all of these people who voted for the Green, who voted for whomever instead of Hillary, yeah, or the people, you know, because I spoke in Vegas to a group of young people the day after the election. I had predicted that Trump was going to win, by the way, uh, a couple of months before it happened. Wow. And people in my office blame me. They said I put it in the air and all that <laughs> shit, right? You're the reason why this happened, right? <laughs> I put that all in the air. But, but, you know, the day after the election, and a lot of these were younger people, so a lot of them were in tears, and you know, and I was trying to say to them, look, you know, unfortunately, I've lived long enough to see a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. But I have to admit, I could never have thought that we would see this because I've never seen anything mm -hmm. quite like this. I mean, I you know, I lived through Nixon, I lived through all that. But this is qualitatively different yeah. than anything else that mm -hmm. I've ever seen, right? But, but, but I, I, I was one of those people who day after elections said, hey, we was going to have to fight either way, whether yeah. it was Hillary or Trump, which I believe to be true. Mm -hmm. But the type of fight, I have no idea now mm -hmm. what where we were going to be in this country and in the world mm -hmm. nine months out or how is he, 10 months? Yeah, it's almost he's been a year in. now, so yeah. 10 months. Yeah. And, and what I told a group of young people who had not voted, mm -hmm. I said, y'all need to shut up. Yeah. I mean, you can't say nothing to me. You, you have every right to say, I'm going to protest by not voting, but you have no right now to be talking about Trump. You know what I mean? So, yeah. shut up, because <laughs> you chose not to vote as a protest. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I'm saying all that to say to you all that whatever pathway you choose to um, try to fight to make a society just, Every one of those pathways are going to have contradictions and mm -hmm. obstacles, and <laughs> you know what I mean. And, and and sometimes you literally are going to be choosing between a rock and a hard place. Looking for a silver lining, do you think that Trump being elected illuminated to a lot of people like just how much bigotry white and supremacy. like white supremacy yeah. pervaded our culture? And it's like we've detected the cancer early enough now that hopefully we can like overcome it. Or is there no silver lining? Or I don't. I, I don't see a silver lining mm -hmm. because what I see is the potential of a tremendous amount of damage that will be difficult to just undo, right? Which is which is my worry, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I mean, I agree with you. If Hillary had been elected, you, you're going to have a surge of what we currently see. Yeah. The difference would be that you wouldn't have the person in the top political office in the land pretty much supporting. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's one thing to be out there in the wilderness, like, <laughs> doing certain things. It's another thing to be sitting in the White House yeah. Yeah. Cares a lot with, with everything that comes with that. I'm really worried about how long it will take for the country to turn in a different direction than the country is going in now. But the thing that bothers me the most is that Trump and his folks have helped create an environment that has us divided in ways that were he not the president, it would be harder to have us divided. The effect it's having on young people 
the disillusionment, this idea that, you know, what's the point of now? Look who's in the office, right? Like, he's never going to be an advocate for me. He's never going to promulgate policies that benefit me and my family and people who look like me. And so that, the worry is that that feeling that young people have of disillusionment remains. Right. And but, but and I think what you, what we got to help them see, though, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. That the one difference between here and some other places is you actually can get these people out of office. Mm-hmm. And, and ironically, democracies are messy and, and your person don't always win. Yeah. But you have the capabilities of changing that. Mm-hmm. And that what won't change it is exactly what you're getting ready to do by saying, I'm never going to participate yeah. again. That's what they want you to do. Eventually, our conversation led us to a discussion around criminal justice. Yeah, and we were reminded why talking with people like Dr. Fuller, who have such a vast array of knowledge, is so important. Yeah, and he provided us with a much better historical perspective uh, than you can get from the everyday news. For instance, the killing of unarmed black men is something Dr. Fuller was confronting decades ago. Ernest Lacey was a young black man who was killed by the police in uh, July of 1981, I think it was. Michael McGee uh, and me, Michael McGee Sr. and I, created this coalition, and it was the first time that anything had ever been done to any police for killing black people. There's a long history of the police in Milwaukee killing black people. Going back to when I was a senior in high school, a man named Daniel Bell was killed by the police. And there were, you know, efforts to do something about it. Mm-hmm. It never happened. And ironically, while we were involved in the Lacey battle, one of the police officers, and th- this is what, like 30 years after that, one of the uh, police officers who was involved came forward and admitted that they had planted a weapon on Daniel Bell. And it actually led to their family getting a settlement from the yeah. city, even while the, the Lacey family also got a settlement from the city. The the difference today is that you have videos, cameras. (laughs) You know, because back then you had nothing. And and the police word was always uh, taken. But, I mean, it's it's interesting because uh, there's a a book I read years ago. I think it was called The Velvet Glove or something like that. And what it it had to do with was how how the police actually got created in this country. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is tied back to slave you know, these posses or whatever that, that went after slaves mm-hmm. was like at the forefront mm-hmm. of the creation of, of the formal police departments wow. uh, in this country. But, you know, what, what I always tell young people is that things change in a certain way, but certain fundamentals may not change, right? But everybody has to deal with it at the point in time in which they live. Frantz Fanon wrote this book called Wretched of the Earth, and he said, every generation out of relative obscurity must discover its mission and either fulfill it or betray it, right? Mm-hmm. So that every generation has got to figure out, like, given what is happening, what is what is my mission, yeah. you know? That is, if you are a person who believes in social justice. Yeah. And, and so the reality is, although the same thing may be happening, it's happening under different historical conditions, right? Mm-hmm. And so the issue becomes... How do you address it? If you ask me, for example, how are, what's more important, economic policy or education policy? I would say economic policy. Yeah. 
I would say that if you change the minimum wage to $15 an hour for a lot of the kids at our school, that's going to have more impact, frankly, on their lives in certain ways than Mm -hmm. what we do inside our school, right? Because what you got to deal with is all the things that happen to them before they ever get to the school. And so it's like I told a group of people the other day, I said, look, you all sit here, you say you don't want poor people to have medical care. You don't want them to have certain kind of housing program. You for voter ID. You for all of this stuff, but then you say you for charter schools. You know what? So, yeah. so what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, you for charter schools, but but you're, but you're against else. every single thing that's helping the families of the yeah. kids who are gonna go to the yeah. charter school, right? Yeah. So, so my point is that when you start talking systemically, education itself is not a systemic change lever. That's not to say that it's not crucial. It is crucial for the individuals who get it. But there are these larger macro issues out there that would have a much larger impact on people's lives systemically than just getting an education. Yeah. Are there any, any certain issues you see today that are going to define like our generation and the generations to come oh yeah there's no doubt about it i mean i i mean i do think the 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 issue of uh the the police uh you still have the issues of uh you know sexual oppression and uh you know things that are now popping up about mm-hmm. about all these men and, mm-hmm. and and all of it to me is is defined by trump and I was just giving a speech in California um, a couple of days ago. People were trying to ask, well, how did this happen, right? You know, irrespective of what, you know, how people voted, whatever it was. How did, how did a person like Trump happen? Mm-hmm. And I think you can't understand it without understanding white supremacy. And so Coates' latest book, you know, Eight Years in Power, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because most people think it is about Obama. It is, it is about Obama, but it's also about the period after Reconstruction. It's the eight years after Reconstruction. And the fundamental argument that Coates is making is that what white people fear most is not black people running bad government, but black people running good government. Because then you can't use all of the, the stuff that you use that black people are inferior. So one of the things Coates is saying is that Trump's job is to dismantle Obama, not because yeah. it was bad government, but because it was good government. Because the, the the nature of white supremacy in this country is such that if you look at the data that says that in 2040, America will be minorities or people of color will be the majority mm-hmm. in the country. So when you see people marching in Charlottesville about, you know, they will not take our place, whatever they, they were saying, what Trump came along and said was, look, I'm going to, quote, take America back. And the question was, or make America great, take America back, yeah. take, take it back from whom? Mm-hmm. And so if you think about it, when black people came out of slavery, you know, we understood that there was a connection between being liberated, which was to free us from slavery, but liberation is not the same as freedom. And so we believe that in order to really be free or participating citizens, that we need an education. For poor white people, they bought into the notion that, hey, don't worry about getting an education. And even though you're suffering, we will make sure that you're always better than black people. Now, all of a sudden, you look at a world in which people are saying, oh, these black people, these brown people, these gays, these lesbians, all these people, they're not going to take over. So 
the, the, the deal that we struck, that we will remain poor, but at least we're going to be better than them, mm-hmm. that deal is no longer right. possible. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so when people start trying to understand what is at the base of this, you have to look at things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and people keep talking about Trump's base. Trump's base was not just working class white people. You could have got elected just by working class white people. White women with college degrees voted for mm-hmm. him. You look so. So to me, the, the issue is largely about white supremacy writ large. What, what I'm saying is that you all are going to have to deal in this broader construct. It's not only the changing population of America. It's no longer true that the rest of the world simply will do whatever the United States says, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And and so you got a you got a totally different uh, world. And so as you all try to figure out, okay, what constitutes a just society, even though some things may seem the same, in a, in a lot of ways, even if the the fundamentals are not different, the total environment in which you're operating is different. Yeah. Would you see these other systemic like economic policies? Um, as like a prerequisite of sort to like fundamental education progress, progress in the education No, I, I actually see that they have to happen in a parallel fashion. Okay. I mean, so for example, Rothstein wrote this book called uh, Class in Schools. Mm-hmm. And he was making the argument that in order to get change in education, you have to eliminate poverty. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, if that's the case, we have to offer go home. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. Yeah. And, and so I'm saying, no, 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 that, that that are, I hear what you're saying, yeah. Yeah. but that don't make no sense to me. Uh-huh. What makes sense to me is that we have to fight on parallel paths, right? right? And so I've been in a discussion, and I wrote a, a paper on this, because there are people who would argue that education reform begins and ends at the schoolhouse door. I would argue that it doesn't, right? That if I really care about the kids at MCA, then I have to care about all these things that are happening to them before they ever yeah. walk in our doors, right? So I got to be fighting for them on a number of different fronts. But I'm not going to say to them, hey, don't get an education because because <laughs> you're poor. I'm yeah. saying, hey, yeah. get an education so you won't be poor. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm, I'm not telling them that once you get an education, yeah. then everything is like cool, right? Because yeah. that would be, that, that's absurd. And the other thing I, you know, I would ask you all you know, to always think about, and, and again, I was on a, a panel in San Francisco, on, uh, and, and it, was, it, was a, it was a panel about bridging the gap, mm. right, in, the, in the, <laughs> the world of Trump. And so what I said to them was, look, I'm a supporter of parent choice. I'm a supporter of charter schools. I'm a supporter of a whole bunch of things, right? But as much as I support it, if in order to advance it, I would have to work with Donald Trump, I wouldn't do it. And, and, but what I was saying to people is, but I'm not mad at those of you who continue to work with the Republican Party, even though I'm not a Democrat. It's not that I believe in either party. It's just that I think for each of us, we have to decide when is something a bridge too far. So, Derek Bell wrote this book called Silent Covenants. And it's an interesting book because in this book, he talks about a concept called interest convergence theory. And what interest convergence theory essentially says is that, and he was using, for example, that black people made progress during the civil rights movement. The reason why we made progress during the civil rights movement was because at that point in time, we had our struggle. But the United States was trying to convince the rest of the world that democracy was a better form of government than communism. 
Mm-hmm. Hard to do that with Bull Connor sicking dogs on people, mm-hmm. right? So at a certain point, they're like, hey, man, you got to quit sicking dogs on people. So at that moment in history, our interests converge. The interests of black people, the interests of the white rulers in this country converge. But because you're coming at it from two totally different worldviews, that convergence is never permanent. So I've used that for most of my life, but what, but, but, but what I, and, and, and have taken a lot of criticism for it, and I understand it. But even there, there can come a point in time where somebody, even though they agree with you on the issue, and you would normally work with them on it, it could be that broadly what they stand for, you can't work with them. Mm-hmm. E- even if it means you don't advance something that you totally believe in. And it's, it's, it's always difficult to sit with people whose worldview you don't share, but you've got a common point of interest. But what I tried to say to them is that Donald Trump, for me, is a bridge too far. But I'm not mad at people who use the same theory that I use. And for them, they would make the argument, yeah, but somebody's got to be there, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I, I can't be mad at them. But what I say to them, but I can't be there. Yeah. And I think we all have to make those types of difficult decisions, mm-hmm. right? Because because I would argue that if you choose to work in social justice, you have to be able to to live in a world of contradiction. And, and, it, and if you can't deal with that, you're not going to be able to get anything done. But even within that, the question that each of us has to come to is what is my limit? Where do I draw the line? What do you think are ways that your average citizen in Milwaukee can like really get involved, especially in today's landscape, and right. make a political difference or make right. a difference in the community. Right. I would say a couple of things. Number one, in this type of representative democracy, one way, obviously, to have impact is to run for office, mm-hmm. <laughs> is to try to get into a position where you can influence the direction of policy. Another way, of course, is not to run for office, but to work for people who run for office. Another way is to, you know, be a researcher. What I'm saying is there's all these different ways that you can impact what it is that happens. At certain points in time, though, the way to have impact is to resist, is to refuse to participate or to accept something. And so in Derek Bell's book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, he, he was talking about this notion that sometimes you have to get up and fight even when victory is not possible. And the reason why you do it, because not to fight is to co-sign on the injustice. So sometimes you have to fight even though you can't see any possibility of change. The conditions are just not there, right? But not to get up and fight anyway is to say this is okay. Even if I feel like the current time is really hard to make a change, like even resistance at least stops it from going farther. Right. And it resistance keeps it from being normalized. In society, exactly. You know? Exactly. If you let it, if you say, well, it's not going to change, so I'm not going to do anything. Right. People see that, especially like young people, and they're like, oh, no one's resisting. This must be okay. Right. And, and how does that affect people as they... Yeah, and so then we buy into this notion. I, th- I think that's a hugely important point because then you buy into this notion that this is the new normal. What yeah. the hell does that mean? Yeah. You know, so this, some of this stuff that is going on, we cannot say, oh, okay, this is normal. You can just get up there and lie 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. you're the president of the United States. You just lie. Mm-hmm. And we're just saying, oh, you know, this is the new normal. No, no. If you're lying, you're lying. Yeah. Right? yeah. You know, and, and you, you know, you can't just call everything you don't like fake, you know, and all of this. Right. So then all of a sudden you're just going to take what's real and make it fake mm-hmm. and take what's fake and make it real. And and if there's nobody sitting there saying, "Hey, no, this is <laughs> this is not true." Yeah, someone needs to keep track. Right, of what somebody's got to say, "This is this is," yeah. <laughs> you know, or else what? You know, and I I believe that to be true. A conversation with Dr. Fuller organically becomes a conversation where he is providing advice and action steps throughout. But this is Bridge the City, and I heard that we need to give action steps. You're learning. And given the salience of politics today, we want to conclude with some advice about what to do in 2018. Yeah, I, I think there's two ways. There's you create something or you work with something that is already there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, so yeah. that, no, that's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> but at a certain point, that really is what it is, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I mean, over the years, I've, I've, I've been involved in voter registration. I've been involved in getting people out to vote on day of election. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never wanted to run for political office, but I've supported people who did run. So what I would say now is, where could the Democrats, because they are the best alternative at this point, where could the Democrats make headway in 2018? And that's where I would focus whatever energies I'm going to have. To either, you know, like I said, organize something new that will be getting out the vote, joining with some people who are already doing that, or joining a specific campaign. That's <laughs> that's what I would yeah. do. Because otherwise, man, you're just gonna sit around and be frustrated. So that concludes our interview with Dr. Fuller. He certainly offered a lot to think about in topics ranging from education to social and economic justice. And something that really stuck out to me was his focus on contradictions, often saying that in any pursuit in life, you will have to battle with these contradictions. And I can personally attest to this being true, uh, particularly when you find yourself working in a space of social justice. Many times I found myself in a, a situation where the thing I think is the right thing to do is actually against some principle that I thought I held dear. This can be a really paralyzing situation and cause an action. Hearing Dr. Fuller talk about going through these contradictions, understanding that life is a beautiful mess of complexity and nuance, and then you often will struggle with deciding what is right to do, but that doesn't mean that you stop. He gave both Ben and I a copy of his book uh, after our interview, and I want to leave you all with the title of that, as I think it sums up his philosophy perfectly. No struggle, no progress. For me, Dr. Fuller's point about getting up and fighting even when there's seemingly no light at the end of the tunnel, was difficult to hear, but probably necessary to remember. Unfortunately, the wind is not at the backs of progressives right now, and likely won't be for a while. The only way out, however, as Dr. Fuller touches on a few times, is to keep doing your due diligence to remain an informed citizen, finding ways to act upon that information, and of course, never overlooking the importance of getting people to the polls. I really get a lot from his discussion on the difference between elite and working class schools. There's something nauseating about the discrepancies in education and the value we place on our young people based on their level of affluence. 
He also made me question what it means to be a good school. Yeah, young people need belonging, autonomy, joy, and then finally, after all that competency. Our mainstream notion of a good school is really called into question once you start asking what we want our students to get out of the process of learning. Also, our conversation on parallel battles really helped me personally. Even if it is easy for me to understand that challenges are interconnected and overcoming challenges means confronting issues in economic, inequality, education, housing, and so on, you don't have to face all of those challenges at once. Instead, you can fight parallel battles. And that makes the obstacles we face a little bit more surmountable. As always, thank you so much for listening and supporting us here at Bridge the City. Remember, sound bites are not solutions. And just listening is not enough. So go hit that five-star rate button and please leave us a review. That really helps us get the word out. Yeah, I think by next week we might be able to get featured on How I Built This with Guy Ross. Please follow us on Twitter and on Instagram as well. And check out our website at bridgethecitypodcast.squarespace.com. And please let us know how you are helping to hashtag... Did we say hashtag? (laughs) (laughs) And let us know how you are helping bridge the city. See you next time. Bridge the city.